3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, coming to you live from the studios of 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. The time is 7.01am, or just coming up to that. And my name is Jackson, and this morning I'm here on my own, but I am expecting some guests throughout the day, which is a really nice thing. I think that uh, Layla, our regular host, will be with us quite soon. And we've also got a great show lined up for the day. Uh, at around 7.30, I'll be talking to Lizzie O'Shea, who is uh, a lawyer and an activist and a writer. And Lizzie O'Shea uh, will be talking about a talk she'll be giving at the New Internationalist Bookstore tomorrow evening, uh, which is about the rise of technology and disruption. Uh, will we be able to harness all of these new digital technologies uh, for the people and the planet, or will uh, the rise of these new, some of them quite potent, uh, frightening, and really just world-changing, you know, this technological disruption, will that technological change simply strengthen uh, the grip of those already in power? So really good to have a chat with Lizzie um, about that talk, and you'll get a bit of an insight, and perhaps you can go along to the talk tomorrow night at NIBS. Uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> as well as that on the show, we've also got our regular segment, Over the Wall. And this week, um, Over the Wall, Duncan from Over the Wall will be looking, um, taking a peek inside the new residential, ten- residential tenancy bill, a Victorian bill, uh, talking about new industrial action against Woolies, and also picking over the entrails of the Canberra leadership bloodletting, which I'm sure many of our listeners lit- couldn't possibly ignore over the end of last week and across the weekend. Um, you know, obviously I'm not proud of it, but it's pretty unusual to feel relief by the fact that Scott Morrison is Prime Minister. This is a man who, uh, during his time as Immigration Minister, accused volunteers and workers with Save the Children of deliberately coaching uh, children in detention to self-harm as part of a broader advocacy strategy. This is the kind of uh, commentary that we've had out of our new Prime Minister in the past. Obviously, he's brought lumps of coal into Parliament to talk about his support for that, the burning of that fossil fuel. Uh, so, unfortunately, I think it's just going to be more of the same from Scott Morrison. Also in the show today, uh, we'll be hearing from Asha B. Abraham from Refuge 2018. Uh, in the third iteration of a five-year project, Refuge examines potential climate-related disasters and traces alternative collective ways to be prepared. Uh, 
It's Refuge 2018. It's called Pandemic and it explores the health impacts of climate change, epidemics, grief, stigma and anxieties invoked by the languages of disease. But first off this morning, I think I'm going to play a song. I'm going to play a track uh, that we played last week when we met Titus De Bruyne, who was an amazing rapper who came in and chatted. Uh, he's from Tarnit, uh, really engaging young man, a lot of great ideas about um, you know how his community could be supported instead of vilified by government and obviously making some great music himself. So this is uh, his track called Dreams. That was Titus Debrion. He was on the show last week. I recommend you go back and check out the podcast, uh, 3cr.org.au. You can download that. We played a bunch of his tracks and also had a really good chat about growing up. Uh, he's from the South Sudanese community, but also lives in Tarnate in the west of Melbourne and is talking about the kinds of opportunities that are out there for kids that are interesting in art, interested in arts and music. That was a really revealing conversation. So I guess it's about that time of the morning. It's coming up to uh, 7.07.35 seconds, to be precise, for those who are into their exact timings. It's time for a little bit of alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. So, yeah, alternative news. Obviously, we've had a lot of news about the change of leadership. Uh, The Guardian is reporting that the overwhelming majority of Australians believe federal politicians are corrupt. A new survey shows 85% believe most or all MPs are corrupt and two-thirds support the creation of a federal IBAC or an anti-corruption body. Anti-corruption researchers say the time is now to create a strong and independent federal integrity body after new research so most Australians believe federal politicians are corrupt. I also just want to give you some breaking news. There is uh, the first asylum seeker boat in four years has actually reached Australian shores and landed at the mouth of the Daintree River in far north Queensland. Eleven of these asylum seekers have already been captured by Queensland and federal police, but another dozen are estimated to be on the run and moving through the rainforest. Now, the arrival has prompted calls uh, from right-wing Liberal MP George Christensen for stronger border protection for his Queensland state and he did this on Twitter. He chucked in a couple of anti-Islamic migration statements for good measure. Meanwhile, the our federal opposition, the ALP, says that this failure of border security is emblematic of a government in crisis that Labor, quote, will never let the people smugglers back in business. Now, meanwhile on Nauru, where the boats that don't make it to Australia have their terrified human cargo stored for endless months and years, the ABC 
are very sadly reporting that refugee children on Nauru are currently Googling how to kill themselves. <clears throat> and I apologise for shocking people so early in the morning. Uh, but it is, uh, this has been published at 7.30am this morning by Paul Farrell. Oh, sorry, at 6.30am this morning by Paul Farrell um, from the 7.30 program. This is published on ABC News. It says, Refugee children on Nauru are facing an unprecedented health crisis and are at real risk of death, three whistleblowers have warned. One healthcare worker recently employed on Nauru told 7.30 some of the children are using Google to research ways to die. Leaked documents compiled by immigration workers obtained by 7.30 reveal a shocking spate of recent self-harm incidents. One incident report from June 2018 says a 14-year-old refugee child had poured petrol over herself and had a lighter. Uh, This report goes on. There's a a number of comments from Vernon Reynolds, a former child psychiatrist on the island employed by Australian government's health contractor, International Health and Medical Services. Uh, there's comments from uh, a recent nurse uh, and social worker. A social worker, Fiona Owens, was employed by the same organisation, IHMS, as the child mental health team leader from May to July this year and alleges she witnessed alarming rates of self-harm amongst children. So I just think it is... Um, appalling uh, that the response to um, an asylum seeker boat reaching our shores is to call for stronger borders, you know, more enforcement of our new Prime Minister's infamous Operation Sovereign Borders where naval vessels uh, intercept these ships before they make it to Australia and direct them towards these offshore torture camps as Andrew Bartlett described them last week right here on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, that that is the response, rather than talking about the inhumanity, the torture, the horror that these programs have um, have uh, visited on these people already flu- fleeing terrible persecution, uh, and just the callousness of the Australian public to support figures like George Christensen and even uh, ALP spokesperson. Uh, who made the response, I'm just trying to remember the, the current name of the, uh, Shane Newman is the current ALP opposition spokesperson on border security, immigration and border protection, as though they are uh, interlinked issues, uh, just shows the kind of tenor of the country at the moment. I also think it's very timely considering that in the UK at the moment, uh, Rohingya refugees who fled the violence in Racine State last year commemorating one year since violence engulfed Burma's northwest and they're calling for the International Criminal Court to charge members of the Myanmar military and also call Aung San Suu Kyi to account for the role that she's played in the ethnic cleansing that saw over 6,700 people, including 700 children, murdered within the first month of violence at this time last year. So I just think all of these things are are intersecting. There's been another um, quite serious um, strike in Afghanistan overnight as well. you know, we know that war and conflict and violence inflicted on individuals, most often by states, you know, who seem to have a monopoly on violence these days, uh, 
violence towards their own citizens, violence towards citizens in other countries without a UN mandate, just the kind of collapse of civil society, the collapse of civil discourse around the people impacted by this wanton war-making and violence. Uh, it's just so disappointing to see that we're going to have more of the same from both sides of Parliament. In terms of some other headlines uh, making news this morning, apart from the uh, perhaps two dozen asylum seekers still on the run a few hundred kilometres north of Cairns, uh, I think it's also important to note a few of the changes in our federal parliament. Um, there's a fantastic uh, commentator, Simon Holmes Accord. He commentates on energy policy and the environment regularly on Twitter. I believe he's a scientist. And he said during the Libs bill that if Angus Taylor was made the energy uh, minister, he would be vomiting because Angus Taylor is a man who is an avowed climate sceptic, uh, someone who has, um, you know, you know, done a lot to stop the development of clean energy in this country. Um, he's an anti-wind campaigner. Uh, he, yeah, I mean, it, it was a bit like uh, when Tony Abbott named himself as the Minister for Women and the Minister for Indigenous Affairs. It's the same kind of, uh, you know, just a subtle political way of flipping the bird towards people in this country that want to see us move towards a renewable future. Uh, so that's very disappointing that Angus Taylor has indeed been named uh, Energy Minister. Uh, you would have heard perhaps over the weekend that Julie Bishop, Julie Bishop and Malcolm Turnbull have both announced their retirement uh, and that Barnaby Joyce, um, the hu- a man who I think we can now also uh, join Darren Hinch in being called a, a human headline, Barnaby has been named a special envoy to go out and help the farmers with the drought, which obviously doesn't have anything to do with climate change, this, uh, this drought, while, you know, Fires, you know, burn out of control in New South Wales at the end of winter, you know, not even at the beginning of the fire season yet. But Barnaby has been sent to be to put on his hat and be a special envoy to find out how we can help these farmers out of a, out of this um terrible drought that they're experiencing. Callie O'Dwyer has uh, <coughs> been named Industrial Relations Minister. Christopher Pine maintains his position as Defence Minister and will continue to ramp up spending on making Australia compete as a small arms manufacturer. Joss Frydenberg, in a nod to the so-called centre of the Liberal Party, has been made Treasurer. And Maurice Payne, who uh, has been in Defence and Veterans Affairs, uh, she takes over from Julie Bishop as Foreign Minister. So just a few of the names that are coming through there. Uh, I'm going to play another song now. I'm going to play a song uh, in solidarity uh, with those struggling on Nauru and Manus. I'm going to play a song by a refugee um, called Moz, who's currently on Manus, I believe. I should double-check that after the song. It may be be Nauru. Uh, But I'm going to play a song by Moz. It's made with a New Zealand musician called Ruth Mundy, and this is a track called The Birds. I don't know how I am or how I came to be or how you appear. 
You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and I have been joined in the studio now by Layla. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. How are we? I'm pretty good. Did you enjoy the uh, Melbourne transport system this morning? Yeah, I was a victim to the level crossing removals project, <laughs> as I'm sure that like three quarters of the general commuters have been over the last year. But I'll also reap the benefits, so uh, it's not all bad on that front, but yeah. it, it is a testing of patience. I, I realised as well how irrational you become when you're stressed. <laughs> oh, no. All these little things just like started to like really annoy me that generally like I don't even pay attention to. Well, you know what? Like it's, it pays to remember that this we come in here as volunteers and you know if you're running late on no one likes getting up on a Monday morning and it's not your fault that it was late so don't be stressed I ha- is it a terrible thing to say to someone when they feel stressed just don't be stressed yeah but you don't you know there's no stress here there was just um me waffling about you know the weeks the week's events so I you haven't missed much to it. Oh, I'm gonna have to catch up <laughs> I take it you touched on the whole we've got a new prime minister situation. I did touch on that <laughs> a little, yeah. I'm, I, for me, you know, I was saying it's um it's a weird feeling when you feel relief that Scott Morrison is prime minister rather than Peter Dutton. It's gross, I know, but then I I that rem, that relief was uh it swiftly faded when I remembered that this was a man who said that. Uh, save the Ch- save the children volunteers had deliberately coached uh, mm. refugee children to self harm mm. as part of a broader campaign to win sympathy. Mm. Uh, it's it's also interesting. I'm repeating myself for our listeners out oh. there, but uh, the ABC um, are reporting at the moment that there is a from members of of um, employees of of Australia's own government that there is a massive spike in self harm amongst children currently on Nauru. So um, yeah. Exactly right. It, I mean, this whole situation has really got me thinking about, well, like, what is Australian politics? Like, from an objective point of view, it's like, it's a complete farce. Like, it's, a f- it, 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 we are so conservative and ideologically kind of like going backwards in so many ways and so unstable. It seems, um, ridiculous to look at it from afar to see how kind of prosperous we are and how how much beauty and creativity we have as individuals within this country but we're kind of governed by such like foolery well on that note you know i think the the electorate in general is as you describe it um perhaps uh lilting to the right you know um Trading on fear, trading on division. You know, I think we're going to have a, an election campaign that looks at looks at that really strongly. But then there's a poll recently put together. Uh, it's reported on uh, Green Left Weekly, showing almost 60% of young people think socialism is a better alternative uh, to capitalism. Many are questioning capitalism for the simple reason they are wondering how they'll be able to afford moving out of home, which is a pretty, you know, self-involved reason to question a political system. But uh, it is true, you know, it's becoming a harder country to live in for the, unless you want to, you know, work crazy hours and you know even then, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who's moved into the corporate sector and he's been paid peanuts so um you know i think that's um a bit of a myth that there's these 
really fantastic jobs out there mm, as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, something that interested me over the last couple of days was Di Natale's speech mm. um, in the parliament. Um, he kind of like, uh, the thing that really inspired me was the, the passion and the fury and the anger because that's um, a necessity at these times to kind of like allow that to like speak through you. But some things that I picked up on was that um, the kind of archaic nature of the whole parliamentary system. Like, so, for instance, he got in trouble twice for not calling the senators by their proper names. And, like, that just, like, to to interrupt someone saying something so important for something so menial just made me look at this whole process as a joke. Mm. Like, it just didn't make any sense that you had this speaker that, like, was kind of presiding over it all to make sure that it's a cordial debate. But, like, so they're paying each other these kind of, like, kudos, pats on the backs, respect, but they're not actually talking about anything that was within, contained within his fury. Yeah, you're ignoring the policies <laughs> to talk about, you know, basic manners, you know, which are not, you know, it's not really relevant in that context, is it? You know, like I understand, as you just said, it's about promoting civil and responsible debate, but how about a civil and responsible debate about children locked up for <laughs> years and years, you know, about... Uh, health rates amongst Indigenous Australians, you know, about um, the <laughs> Turnbull left saying the most important thing to think about for the next whoever takes over, you know, from this um, insurgency that has uh, unseated me. Uh, it's important to think about the children as he cancels the Paris, uh, our Paris climate agreements, you know, as we go to uh, invest more. Definitely. This is, this is a Prime Minister who carried uh, a lump of coal, quite a large one, into Parliament to demonstrate his appreciation for burning more of these fuels. He's just nominated uh, an absolute climate denier as the Energy Minister, a man named Angus Taylor. So for Turnbull to say, I know that my colleagues in the future will be thinking about the children. Whose children? Mm. You know, like... Maybe maybe he'll move his own to the Bahamas. Or, no, that'll probably be underwater. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, by that point. So my question here is that this... Uh, sorry, this statistic was 60%? Was of 85% of the ability. article that you showed me that, oh. that that think all MPs are corrupt, yeah. if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So we've got, we've got that. So that statistic, which is just extraordinary. Um, and we've also got that statistic about the um, people that believe in socialism. Um, so yeah, young almost 60%, 60% young people. 60% that believe mm-hmm. in socialism. Mm-hmm. So we've got 85% of the electorate that believe our federal politicians are corrupt. And then we've got 60% of young people that believe socialism is a better alternative to capitalism. Now, the question that I pose is that, is it possible to have a socialist government that is not corrupt? It's a great question. <laughs> I'm, I'm studying history at the moment, and we just looked at Lenin when he when he when they won in in in, 18, in 1917, and they took over, and you know and he he had these ideas about how you needed like a a strong cabal of politically intelligent. They had to be secretive because of you know the fascist police or the Tsarist police. You know they couldn't be caught, and they had to guide the working classes towards this revolution, which they succeeded in. And then they put all these workers' cooperatives in charge, the biggest workers' cooperatives, the the Petrov Soviet. It was called, you know, that was out of the biggest cities in St. Petersburg. Um, 
but we kind of saw we saw what happened there when a small cabal of intellectual elites um, take control of everything. So I I think in it my my optimistic answer to your question, Layla, is yes. But we need to have a good think about how it's going to work mm-hmm. once we get the power. The power is the problem. Mm-hmm. It's not the people that's the problem. It's the power that's the problem, and what's mm-hmm. done with it when when you have it. But keeping power in the hands of the people or making sure that power serves the people is the aim. We actually have to go to a quick break because mm. we've got an interview coming up kind of about this issue. We're going to be talking to Lizzie O'Shea, uh, who's a lawyer, human rights activist and a writer about technology and the way that it's going to be used in the future to either empower or control the people. So stay tuned. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. One love to all the people in Melbourne. This come down to Rasta's Journey Home, a movie made by Dr. Maria Stratford. Special benefit screening, it's on Tuesday, 28 August 2018, 6.15pm to 7.30pm. Tonbury Picture House, 802 High Street, Tonbury. Finalist Africa World Documentary Film Festival. And it's on Ethnograph Film Official Selections and Harlem International Film Festival 2017. You can get a ticket at the venue. Peace and love. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and, most importantly, peers in the community. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7.33am. I'm not sure of the weather outside, but it's been more mild over the last few days. I've been enjoying it. So don't put on as many layers as you are going to, unless you have a cold, and then do that. Put on more layers. So tomorrow night at the New Internationalist Bookstore at Trades Hall, Lizzie O'Shea will be giving a talk called Digital Technologies for the Planet and People Rather Than the Privileged. Now, Lizzie is a lawyer, a broadcaster and a writer. Uh, She's mainly worked in human rights with her law work and she's publishing a book next year with Verso Press about the politics and history of digital technology. Lizzie, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Lizzie, tell us a bit about the research you've been doing. What does the future hold when it comes to digital technology? 
Well, I think if we were listening to some of the big titans of the tech industry, we would assume everything was going swimmingly, uh, that our future is going to be delivered by highly optimised humans in partnership with digital technology. But I think the reality for lots of people is that uh, digital technology has become a source of anxiety or fear that they're being watched either by the government or by corporations who want to sell them things and want to track every aspect of their behaviour. And also it's presided over a transformation of our uh, working lives so that more of our life is spent working and less of our lives spent doing things that we enjoy. And I wanted to look at that and wonder whether it was possible to see alternatives to this kind of future. And I do think actually digital technology holds immense promise for solving some of the most difficult problems of our age, like climate change, for example, or mass wealth inequality. Uh, but really, it's only if we examine who holds the power in how technology is developed that we're going to be able to reclaim that future. And I think we really need to look at um, both industry and government and figure out how we can uh, wrest the power of technological development away from those two poles of attraction. And that's essentially what my book is about. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested about that intersection of business and government and technology and, be- and people. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, green energy and the government's role in that. We hear Elon Musk, you know, flying around the world in his super rockets, saving the world. And we hear about Amazon dr- delivery drones and what that means for working people. But could you expand a little on what some of, you know, what the titans of business and government are proposing and what that means, what that could mean in everyday people's lives? Well, I think one of the best ways to look at this actually is through the idea of surveillance because when we think of surveillance in digital technology, we often think of um, Edward Snowden or the government controlling, um, you know, flows of information and trying to unencrypt them uh, to make sure they had access to them at will. But actually, none of the states capacity to surveil its citizens would really be possible if it wasn't for uh, technology capitalism, you know, uh, various companies that uh, provide platforms for us or provide the infrastructure for us to communicate online uh, didn't also participate in that surveillance industry. So that takes the form of uh, every time you visit a website, people track what you do, um, your devices talk to each other in ways that you might not know, um, they, the companies collect data and they hold it about you. And then they work in partnership with government to surveil you. So the capacity of both the state and the industry work in partnership to control the civilian population. And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's what they talk about doing. They want to have control of markets and they want to have control of population. So they work together in partnership in those sorts of ways. And I think that's something that's had a long tradition in left-wing thought that that essentially that civil government is an organised voice of the bourgeoisie, that it will do the work of industry. And I think when leftists talk about that, sometimes it's seen as something of a conspiracy theory. You know, we have democratic states that are elected. It's not as though they just represent business. They also represent citizens. But I think you can see that in surveillance and you can see that in all sorts of other industries. Why is it that, for example, Elon Musk is launching a rocket and is heralded as this great innovator when, in fact, he's standing on the shoulders of, of decades of government investment in space technology and government investment in uh, infrastructure that allows him to launch his rockets? We're seeing the privatisation of what was originally public research heralded as innovative development in technology and I really think we shouldn't settle for that. We should aspire to have much greater and much more interesting innovations that benefit uh, humanity and are kept in the public space rather than privatising research that might have already happened and claiming it as the new victory of, of innovators of the 21st century. 
But you touched on it yourself there as well, that governments are working in collaboration with uh, technology giants to surveil us and collect our data. Uh, when yeah. I, I see the new Apple advertisements on TV with their face ID, their advertising, and all I think of is police pointing a phone at a suspect and unlocking it. You know, like yeah. it's, um, I, I, I worry about these, these intersections. How do we continue to hold government to account to make sure they're not um, muddling about in our business? Absolutely. So there's a couple of ways I think we can do that. We can obviously agitate against uh, oppressive forms of legislation, and there's currently a biometric um, bill, uh, a bill for biometric monitoring that's before um, the federal government that will create a centralised repository for exactly what you described, things like Face ID. Um, but I also think we also need to look at people who are making that technology. So you will have seen probably, or your listeners will have also may have been following that in the United States in recent months, we've seen technology workers stand up uh, and resist in some of these companies that traditionally haven't been associated with radicalism. So workers in, in companies like Google and Microsoft have said, we don't want to actually contract with uh, the, um, the Department of Defence to build drones that recognise their subjects better so that they can kill them. You know, that's, I think, an incredible development that we've seen. Very small numbers of workers having an enormous impact on the defence industry. And so one thing I think we can do is support them and encourage unionism and, and uh, keep alive those traditions of worker organising because that has an immense capacity, I think, to influence this development and work out how we can also participate in that, whether that might be doing sympathetic things with them, um, you know, having unions find messages of support, but also looking at how we can agitate in our own workplaces around consumption of technology. Salesforce, for example, a consumer um, database management system, mm. is experiencing huge blowback for uh, participating in contracts with various defence entities. Mm. I think that's something that you could translate around the world. It could have the potential to be a global movement. There's multiple points of intersection into some of these debates, and of course one of the key things we need to do is try and learn about them, and not just assume that they're monolithic, horrendous kind of developments that are unstoppable, but actually they're happening in the here and now. We've got the capacity to influence them. We should try and figure out ways to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, we were talking to Sleeping Giants Oz or a representative from that organisation last week about the efforts to stop hate speech through consumer activism. But that's an interesting thing you touch on with different elements of the supply chain in the ever-growing military-industrial complex with workers standing Absolutely. up and maybe demanding change. Right back at the start of what you were saying there, though, you mentioned a bill that may be coming uh, before Parliament that uh, will resist the create the creation of a database around uh, face IDs or, you know, is, is, yeah. is this around the new form of centralised ID cards that they're going to get people uh, to carry or...? So it's quite a complex bill, but it's um, it's got a couple of interesting components. But there's essentially a move to try and centralise a repository of biometric information. So that includes facial ID, but other things like fingerprinting. Uh, and uh, there's a there's a I mean, if people are interested, there's a fantastic submission that was put together by some of my friends in the Privacy Foundation, which you can read online, which goes through it uh, pretty categorically as to why it's problematic. Mm -hmm. But you can um, imagine the kind of features that exist. It's about uh, states having the capacity to share with each other biometric information. When I say biometric, I mean things that are indelible about your human self that um, can be stored in electronic format. So that might be face ID, it might be um, fingerprinting. But there's all sorts of developments in biometric profiling that are quite interesting, including measuring your gait, your voice, uh, the way you type even can be uh, measured and tracked. So there's a lot of scope for greater research and capacity for the state 
in particular, there's some value. And, and obviously, as that, uh, when we were talking about the partnership between business and state, you can see how that integrates itself into everyday life through industry as well, because, you know, there is this capacity now to pay for things using your face ID. You can unlock your Apple phone, obviously, with your face, as you were describing before. So as those things are integrated into our daily life as part of business, you can see how then it becomes a source of power also for government uh, if they're able to, to collect and centralise these kinds of databases. So there's a, there's a bill to propose to do that. It, it's an it's thin end of the wedge. I think it's about starting that process of sharing and giving the, the uh, state agencies the capacity to do that. But I think that's why it's really important to resist it and uh, to look at what kinds of safeguards they're talking about putting in place for misuse, uh, but also to avoid large data repositories mm. for this kind of material if we don't need them. Uh, I think when it comes to state surveillance and uh, uh, national security, we should always be asking why agencies need more power. They've got immense powers already. They don't use them all the time. Uh, they often see these kinds of complex areas as a reason and, a, and a, a, an opportunity for capturing uh, more data and power about citizens, and we should resist that and ask always why and, and not just blindly assume the justification is valid. Well, we saw the public response even to the My Health initiative. Um, you know, I think people are a little suspicious about these centralised uh, repositories of their own information, even when they're uh, presented in a way that, oh, it's good for you, it's for your health. And what you're describing with um, monitoring people's keystrokes or the way that they walk, that's uh, some pretty frightening stuff. Absolutely. What I would say about my health record is that I think it shows that people do care about their privacy. Mm. People love to talk, commentators love to talk about how Australians don't really care about what's known about them. They're not really fussed because they've not done anything bad. It's the terrorists that need to be concerned. In fact, what my health record shows is that people really are worried about their privacy. They want government to design systems that are properly uh, respectful of their individual space and their data online. Mm. And we should uh, make sure we appeal to that later on to say that actually privacy is a mainstream concern. People have legitimate, sophisticated understanding of what these systems are and they're trying to resist them. So we should we should listen to that and not just ride roughshod and assume that they're, they're silly or meaningless concerns. They're not. And that's something I think that's really been powerful about my health record. It's rung a bunch of concessions now about it. And I think that's a fantastic result. We want to see more of that and, and resist this idea that people are just sheep who don't really care about these things. They do. Yeah, Julian Burnside, we were talking to a few months ago and he said for all this talk about people not caring about privacy, most people still close their curtains in the evening, to which I completely agree. And I think it's also for all the de-stigmatisation around personal health issues, you know, this week is uh, National Overdose Awareness Week and the stigma that remains around things like drug and alcohol treatment, mental health, I mean, these are things that people uh, who have tenuous employment or even secure employment do not want in the public sphere because of the stigma That remains. I heard a PhD student um, in the UK talking about putting QR codes onto homeless people uh, to to combat the lack of cash in the community. People would, you know, people would be able to donate using a smartphone app to a homeless person, but first they'd be able to scan that homeless person and make sure that homeless person had a good record, and it would be opt-in for these good homeless people to be able to put their records online. Just how, just, it just gives, kind of reflects how far down this Orwellian rabbit hole we are that that's being treated as something good for those living on the streets. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, I also saw a report the other day of a congressman or uh, some representative in the U.S. 
suggesting that we put microchip people who are on parole for similar kinds of reasons. Mm. Yeah, I think there is this view as well. And one of the things I want to talk about when I'm speaking at, at NIBS on Tuesday at the New International Bookshop is that uh, there's a view that if we apply technology to some of these social problems that we can fix them as though uh, having some kind of pedigree for homeless people that you can track will therefore mean that you can feel more comfortable about donating to them mm. while leaving intact the system that allows people mm. to become homeless in the first place while saying that technology could be deployed for accountability when it comes to homelessness as opposed to accountability when it comes to uh, the payment of tax by corporations or politicians who make decisions. Like It seems absolutely mad to me that we would apply technology to a problem like that in this way mm. and expect it to be solved. Why wouldn't we be using technology to try and uh, work out where there's uh, resources for people to live, why um, certain houses have remained empty for so long and why uh, why people are homeless at the same time, why there's a problem with our public spending initiative that allows uh, tax incentives for people to keep homes empty rather than uh, occupy them with people and uh, take mm. pressure off rent. Mm. But there's all sorts of ways in which technology could be deployed to, to solve the problem of homelessness, I think, and that's the first one that I've come up with off at the top of my head at 7.30 on a Monday morning. I'm sure I could come up with others. The point being, the idea that technology is used for accountability and policing and uh, that we throw technology at problems as they exist and they'll be solved um, when they're quite sophisticated social and political ones, I think is a huge mistake. But it reflects the tendency towards utopianism that we see right throughout our politics, our, our public commentary and our cultural uh, understanding of our particular moment. And I think we need to resist it. Utopianism has a long history of, um, of, of uh, manifestations throughout the last 200 years in terms of coming to terms with the, the problems of capitalism. And I think it's got some real capacity for uh, to be to think, help us think about what our liberation might look like, but we have to be very careful how it's used because it can also become blind and uh, rather um, uh, thoughtless uh, in relation to the underlying trends that give rise to problems like homelessness or climate change or wealth inequality. Uh, those are political problems. Technology can contribute to solving them, for sure, but unless we come to grips with why they exist as a function of politics and society, the technology is going to be a salve. It's going to be probably something worse than a salve at times as well. It's going to disguise the true nature of the problem, mm. and, and we should be really careful about that. So part of my book as well is to track like this idea of technological utopianism to work out what its usefulness is in our, in our current moment and uh, to discard some of the ways in which it's been deeply dysfunctional and uh, empowered the worst aspects of society and the worst people in society rather than uh, doing the opposite, which is what it should do. Lizzie, hi. Uh, Layla here. Um, I'm right there with you all the way through. Totally, totally, totally agree with your perspective. Um, it's something that I've been, you know, pretty concerned with, like, the last few years, just fueling myself on this information and seeing where our society is headed. Um, the thing is, I'm massively sceptical that anything will get in the way of, of our already kind of, like, continued drive towards totalitarianism through this kind of, like, um, the technological evolution um, so my, my perspective is, is there anything outside of direct action, like, that we can, that, that will actually change this course of history? Because for me, the only thing that I can see that's any gonna, gonna make any kind of tangible difference is, like, turning Luddite on the machines. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting, because I actually do talk about the Luddites in the book as well, because I'm a big fan of the Luddites, and I think they've been uh, grossly misrepresented throughout history. Um, it, I think it's very interesting, because the Luddites were essentially a form of labour radicalism. They were not... Um 
uh, uh, opposed technology per se, but they used uh, the tools that were available to them, which was machine breaking, to demand a better uh, work experience in their daily lives because they resisted um, the idea that artisan work should be discarded for mindless labour in factories, which I think is a really interesting comparison with our current moment. Uh, I think there's lots of potential for change. And, uh, you know, I, I felt the same way as you, really frightened about the prospects of the future and feeling like uh, the powers that be are so incredibly entrenched and um, difficult to displace that the, the future that you want to see is almost so difficult and remote you can't imagine even building it from the bottom up. But I actually think that the current moment we find ourselves is kind of quivering with potential in sorts, all sorts of ways. Like, apart from obviously labour activism, like I've talked about supporting workers who are in the technology industry and, and across industries, because it's not even just coders that are important in the technology industry, it's all sorts of people who also facilitate their work, including the people who open and close their buildings and clean them and all sorts of things. So there's all sorts of ways in which labour intersects with technology in interesting ways. I think there's also things you can do as a kind of activist and um, somebody who uses technology for these purposes. We can resist using platforms like Facebook. We can try and get off them and use other ones. We can try and encourage people to think about the devices that they use and the programs that they use and encourage things like open free source software because that has its own radical history, which I think is quite interesting, of people coming together, building things together and um, creating products that are safer and, and aimed to service the user rather than co the company. Uh, we, can, we can talk about using those and, and mainstreaming their use within uh, left-wing activist movements, as well as, of course, like protesting and those kinds of things too. I mean, there's plenty of different options, and I think uh, all of these inter intersect with each other in all sorts of differing ways, and hopefully I'll, I'll give you some more detail on the book when, I've, when it's published and it comes out next year. Um, but, I, yeah, I think there's, there's got to be more than protest, to be honest, uh, and I'm hoping that we can start a conversation about what that might look like. Um, but, yeah, unionism, I think, is one. Uh, being involved in watching how our legislators work is another, uh, as well as, yeah, generalised protesting, resistance, and raising awareness, and having these discussions in left-wing movements about how technology is a left issue that we need to come to terms with rather than something that's for um, civil libertarians to, to bother mm. with or computer nerds to trouble themselves with. That's, yeah. that's not, not a good enough answer anymore, I don't think. Hey, Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us on a Monday morning. I know you're flat out. And um, tomorrow night, it's at um, 7 p.m. this Tuesday, August 28th, at uh, the New Internationalist Bookstore. It's 5 bucks to get in or $3 for NIBS members. So, um, yeah, good luck with the talk and looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. Thank you so much for having me on. Cheers. Bye. So you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Up next is our regular segment, Over the Wall. Hello. I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today I'll be sharing some news on the current state of residential tenancies reform in Victoria, new wages campaigns in the retail sector and the repercussions of the Canberra leadership spill. First of all, let's deal with the Residential Tenancies Amendment Act 2018. This long-awaited bill to reform rental law passed the lower house of the Victorian Parliament at the end of last week. It now awaits consideration by the upper house in September, where it must pass to become law. It's not easy to predict what will happen in the upper house, 
It may be passed, it may be rejected, or it may pass with amendments, sending it back to the lower house. There are only six sitting days left before the election, so it's still line ball whether the bill will become law in this parliament. Let's look at what the bill contains before discussing its political effects. As announced last year, pets will be allowed in rental properties as long as the landlord is notified and associated damage is paid for by the tenant. Also announced then, tenants will be able to make minor modifications to the premises and there will be a public database on landlords and agents, a kind of official Yelp for them. Bonds will be easier and quicker to access at the end of a tenancy, with tenants being able to bypass the agent and apply directly to the bond authority. In addition, bonds for properties valued at double the median rent and below will have bonds capped at the equivalent of a month's rent. This figure would currently apply to properties rented at less than $1,520 per month, so this seems limited to one or two person properties. For the first time, tenants subject to domestic violence with some tests will be able to terminate their tenancies and will also be able to evade debts incurred by the abuser. Agents and landlords will not be able to accept rents above the advertised price so that rental bidding will be outlawed. Rental increases will be limited to annual increments rather than six monthly increases and safety and security requirements will be beefed up. One of the happier surprises is that the government has decided to ditch no reason 120 day notices to vacate. Landlords will now have to provide a valid reason for ending a tenancy, each of which has its own requirements of evidence and period of notice. The downside is that most eviction notice periods will be 60 days or under, but I believe tenants will still generally be better off because all these eviction proceedings are now able to be appealed and scrutinised, something not possible under the old no reason notice. All in all, it seems like a good bill, but what will come of it? If it fails in the upper house, then it's off the table until the new government forms in the new year. At the moment, Labor is looking likely to be re-elected, but we've been surprised before. It may become an election issue, and organisations like the Real Estate Institute of Victoria would be campaigning hard against it, seeking to play those voters who own investment properties against those who rent. Further, there is no reason to suspect Labor would gain control of the upper house in November, so that legislative council battle would have to be fought anew. The last sitting day of both houses before the election is Thursday, September 20th. Keep an eye and ear out. We'll know by then the fate of the new bill. We've talked extensively on Over the Wall about retail worker rights in particular over the last year. From February this year, Woolworths has been in negotiation with the Shoppies Union, the Australian Meat Industry Union, the Australian Workers Union and the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union to broker a new enterprise agreement on wages and conditions. This agreement would take over from the expired 2012 agreement. Barely a week ago, Woolies and the SDA had announced they had finalised an agreement which would go up before workers for a vote in the following week. The agreement increases penalties and casual loadings, but reduces the Level 2 Permanent Ordinary Hours rate from $22.17 to $21.05. One year in, existing employees would receive a 1.7% pay rise, whilst new employees would get 3.5%. In addition, workers would get a one-off bonus of up to $1,100, prorated by hours worked and length of tenure. Just three days later, Woolies employee 
Lucas Kakogianis applied to the Fair Work Commission to have the 2012 EBA torn up. Lucas, who is a member of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, also applied to have back pay for the last six years awarded by the Commission. The union estimates the value of this at $1 billion. As usual, this application to the Commission revolves around the boot, or better off overall test, and would have a good chance of success. However, the issue of back pay, usually pursued through federal courts rather than the Commission, would be precedent-setting if successful. Whilst I wouldn't want to speculate on Rafu's strategy on this, I think that it highlights the need to beef up the powers of the Commission on back pay. Too often in recent years, major retailers have had a perverse incentive to delay agreements, knowing that a new enterprise agreement tends to wipe the slate clean of their obligations and respect of past agreements, unless pursued through the regular courts. If employers had proper jeopardy in matters of the boot, and an ongoing requirement to pay back pay from past agreements judged unfair, it would, in one stroke, improve the bargaining position of millions of workers. For the sake of transparency, I should declare that I am a current paid-up member of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Megaliters of ink and megabytes of reporting have been used up trying to make some sense of the knucklehead right-wing revolution in Canberra last week. I'll be adding to that, in a couple of areas, that may point to coming problems this government may have, even under their new Prime Minister. PM Scott Morrison announced his Cabinet reshuffle yesterday. The unsolved problem of Tony Abbott was delayed by keeping him on the back bench. Christopher Pine gets Defence, Josh Frydenberg gets Treasury, Maurice Payne gets Foreign Affairs, Simon Birmingham jumps from Education to Trade, and Dan Tehan jumps into Education. Not much of significance there, but have a look at home affairs, environment and energy, and things get more interesting. Dutton retains home affairs, as expected, but significantly, immigration has been sliced off from his purview and given to David Coleman, a relative clean skin. This could signal a couple of things. Perhaps that is the punishment Dutton has been given for the wrecking ball last week. Perhaps it is recognition that the monolithic centralisation of power given him last year in the new super ministry was a mistake. I don't think it wise yet until Minister Coleman starts to talk as immigration spokesman to suppose that immigration will not be a major electoral issue. Another change is that Frydenberg's former gig as Minister for Environment and Energy has been split in two. Environment goes to Melissa Price, former assistant minister in that portfolio. But much more telling, energy goes to Angus Taylor. Taylor, who claims not to be a climate sceptic, has campaigned often against renewables, including before his parliamentary career. I think it's safe to assume that this is as clear a signal as you can get that the Morrison government will not be pursuing climate policy in its last six months, and that the NEG, like all legislative attempts before it, is as dead as the dodo. It is interesting that the new cabinet in general outline does very little to conciliate the right wing of the coalition. Perhaps Morrison has made the judgment that his premiership as a conservative between the centre and right camps is sufficient ideological ballast. Time will tell. Some commentators have hinted at ructions in the National Party that may emerge as the noisy egos of Barnaby Joyce and the new boy David Littleproud combined with LNP disaffection in Queensland and fury over last week's spill fiasco. 
That's it for now. Next week, more on issues around problems at Centrelink. I'm sure that most of the listeners are aware, but let me just reiterate. We are currently in the middle of a widespread and rapid decrease in the biodiversity of Earth right now. Um, Scientists are referring to this as an extinction event, and the last mass extinction event, which wiped out about 95% of life on Earth, was likely caused by methane release from the Arctic seafloor, triggering a rapid warming of the Earth's atmosphere. That's currently what we're facing, um, uh, as our our futures are facing. Um, And the way that the politicians are responding to this is literally insane. They are creating a world that's unfit for the survival of their own genes. Now, all of this information we're kind of confronted with on a day-to-day basis, and it's very easy to suffer from cognitive bias because it's so... There's so much weight behind it that it's very hard to contemplate the um, the extinction of our species. But we have to let this despair come close to us and we have to nurture it. And the honesty has to be the best policy here for our survival. And on that note, um, the City of Melbourne's Art House has um, been putting together a, um, a series of events um, called Refuge, It's in its third year of a five-year project, um, and it leads a unique conceptual inquiry that um, interrogates different concepts to be prepared for pandemic threats. So it's considering alternate thinking and approaches, um, and it's um, open and adaptable to explore all possibilities in the face of climate change, including epidemics, grief, stigma, and anxieties invoked by the language of disease and nightmares so um that th- this these events are going to be held through wednesday 29th of august to the saturday the 1st of september at the arts house in north melbourne town hall um and i recommend anybody looking at the um kind of itinerary of what they've got planned at www.artshouse.com.au um, one of those events is going to be Supper Club Sanatorium, and it's organised by Asha B. Abraham, who's here in studio with us today, uh, and her partner, Lizzie Sampson. And they're going to be hosting a future-focused refuge event, um, edition with an Indigenous futurist, an epidemiologist, an HIV activist, an AI expert, a neo-peasant, and an emergency responder to explore ethical survival, collective preparedness, and potential worlds. Whoa. Yeah, I I read that, and I was like, (laughs) okay, I need to talk to this person, because this is fascinating. Really, really, really. Um, Sorry, I'll just quickly say, this is going to be on 7pm on Friday, the 31st of August, but welcome, Asha. Hi, thanks, Layla. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Um, Yeah, this is some, some heavy subject matter. It is. It is. I guess, um, yeah, you described refuge really well. So refuge is this year. It's looking at the, a pandemic scenario, but in previous years, I guess the, the, the intention of refuge is to look at climate change and 
climate change related emergencies and the role that arts, the arts and artists and um, cultural organisations can play in responding to these. So Arts House has been working in collaboration with Emergency Management Victoria, Red Cross, Melbourne Uni and a whole bunch of other um, unexpected um, partners in this year with the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. And yeah, um, our event is the third evening event, the Supper Club on Friday, um, and it's a future-focused event, um, but it kind of follows a couple of other events which are a bit more sort of bringing the bringing, bringing the pandemic to us so that we can imagine a hypothetical pandemic to us so we can imagine, yeah, what what that would be like and what we would how it would affect us, who it would affect in our communities, how we can respond. Um, I think in Australia, it's really hard for us to imagine being at the centre of a pandemic, or especially in Melbourne, <clears throat> sorry, in like inner city, inner city livers in in a city like Melbourne, in Australia, it's really hard to imagine a pandemic where we hear things like Ebola and and cholera and things happening in other countries, or even you know SARS happened elsewhere. Um, I guess the idea is to sort of bring it all home and practice, like, yeah, practice, practice how we would live through this, how we would support each other and what we would do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess uh, geographical isolation kind of makes us complacent in this sense. Yeah, 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 geographical. Com- and also I think I was reading actually last night about how during the SARS outbreak, or the, no, sorry, it wasn't SARS, it was bird flu in 2009, how Australians were really complacent in our response and it was tied, it was reported to be tied to lack of trust in media and um, in politicians. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's interesting to look at, I don't know, I guess part of what we wanted to do in our event is to look at how we can sort of build collective trust within the community and yeah, to support each other when when we don't necessarily support uh, trust our leaders to mm-hmm. to you know especially right now to to think on behalf of us and to and to lead us through a disaster. Mm, absolutely, I like I'm kind of always living in this cusp of utopia dystopia in, in the viewage of the future, mm. and I feel like maybe we have to live through this dystopia to get to a point of utopian living, mm. like learn, relearning these kind of collective values and these mm. kind of essence of mutual aid and things like that that a disaster will bring mm. to be able to actually look at one another like mm. in the way that we need to to be able to create a new world. Yeah, exactly, and also learning learning from communities and cultures who have lived through disasters and sort of are living through disasters. So, for example, as you said, we've got Indigenous futurist Maddie Clark um, coming in, who is a writer as well, and she, we're, you know, hoping that her conversation will draw on the past of what has happened, you know, the apocalypse that has happened in Australia mm. um, and is continuing to happen and, you know, the relationship be- with relationship between disease and colonisation and you know what 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 we can learn from yeah from from communities who have lived through this and are continuing to live through mm. resilience mm, exactly yeah 
Yeah, I um I saw that Resilience Australia is actually a part of this um refuge organisation yeah. as well. Yeah. And that's kind of like a different way of looking at building cities now, mm. right? To making it resilient to these possible like kind of you know, mm. pandemics and epidemics. Yeah. Exactly. And resilience is so much about, you know, having strong relationships, not just being dependent mm. on, you know, a paternalistic government or something but having having strong relationships between us in our communities and yeah having that sense of capacity mm. at, at the community level can i ask asha the your section supper club is called sanatorium mm-hmm. which makes me think of a very well resourced panic room <laughs> is that is that close to what um, a sanatorium is we were thinking of a sanatorium as a sort of a place for recovery and convalescence and mm. you know a place to reflect on what we've learnt sort of yeah as I say this is the third event and there's a couple of events before that sort of bring the hypothetical pandemic to us and so mm. we're positioning this sort of inner recovery space um, where during a hi- during a pandemic we community can't actually come together you know you're told to keep away from each other because you know you don't you don't you're told not to gather because you don't want to catch they don't want to catch spread the disease quarantine exactly so socialization isolation is a thing during pandemics Mm. so we're kind of positioning this as a as a sort of coming together and learning from yeah learning to care for each other again after Mm. we've been told to fear each other um and yeah l- learning from the the pandemics of the past, like hypothetical as well as real pandemics of the past yeah. and from that imagine how we want to live to- towards the future yeah i got to say similar to Layla, i oscillate between utopian and dystopian versions of what mm. of what's to come but i must say i'm encouraged by this whole project because one of my concerns mm. in the event mm. of a pande- pandemic or environmental catastrophe is what do people who are not very good with their hands or building <laughs> things actually do and i think you've started to articulate what roles those of us who's only uh, gifts are involved words yeah. may may actually be able to 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 contribute, yeah. and that's a really interesting thing to to play out. I see you've got Michelle Lee, who's a well-known writer, yeah. working as well, and yeah. Um, yeah. other artists. What what other kinds of um, artistic approaches are there to disaster recovery that you've found through five years of this project? Um, so this is the third year. Sorry, third. That's okay. What other? So, for example, last year, an artist, Jen Ray, did a lot of work around food and sort of unexpected, like unpacking how we can use unexpected food sources and nutrient sources in in a time of a disaster. So, for example, using insects and turning them into um, like essentially rum balls (laughs) um, or smoothies or ice blocks and things like that, um, mm. using weeds and, yeah, things like that. I think unpacking, yeah, exploring how different ways that we can, I don't know, draw on the resources around us, mm. yeah, um, and not just and not just rely on, you know, food drops or whatever like that, which would be, in, which would be happening in an emergency. Mm. 
I was talking to a relative of mine who's a nurse, mm. and she was talking about the current flu uh, mm. virus, how mm. that it hasn't really hit yet in Victoria yet, that it's been kind of uh, contained to New South Wales so oh, far right. in this season. So we haven't had the worst wave of it yet. Mm. And I was with my father when I was having this conversation with my aunt, and as we walked away, you know, his comments were, oh, well, the medical profession are always going to make you worried, but there's, there's going to be a, you know, some kind of illness or some kind of pet because it's mm. in their interest. Uh, yeah. And I wonder how you, I know there's a lot of um, partnerships in this and how mm. you negotiate the, I don't want to call it like vested interest, but, you know, the ideas that, you know, a um, global pandemic is right around the future and the panic that that creates, you know, how you negotiate kind of the, um, that ethical responsibility of, um, I mean, how close are we, do you think, to a, to a pandemic? I don't know, and I don't think it matters in that, in some sense. Like the intention of this is about is about coming together to practice and coming together to sort of imagine what could happen and imagine what we can do for each other and with each other. I mm. guess as artists, it's not our place to predict, you know, when the next pandemic or when the next disaster is coming our way. But I think it's our place to to help people. Yeah, sort of bring bring that possibility into the present and imagine, you know, reimagine how how we need to, yeah, what we what we need to actually respond to that and whether mm. we have that with us now or whether we need to build that collectively. And the emotional capacity yeah, is exactly. a really interesting aspect of it as well. I notice grief is yeah. something. There's going to be deaths. You know, yeah. how do we as a community? Yeah, what can exactly. you say about there? Yeah, the emotional responses. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess exactly that the. the we aren't, I think, in in urban Australia, we're not really used to having to, I mean, maybe in Melbourne, I should say, we haven't had a massive crisis hit us recently mm. or in my lifetime here. So it's it's all very, I guess it's, yeah, it's all, you, you see it on TV, mm-hmm. you, you read these, so... You read these fiction books, apocalyptic fictions, or watch, say, Contagion, blockbusters like that, mm. and they're all sort of out there mm. as a as a sort of yeah a mind exercise. And I guess this is as well, but it's kind of I don't know, trying to bring bring yeah bring it present. Mm. Yeah. What's the response like being from the community? It's been good. So I like in. In previous years, that is, um, we were uh, one of another artist involved is um, Lorna Hannon, who is an 85-year-old um, North Melbourne resident who has lived in North Melbourne for the last 50 years, and she has been rallying North Melbourne and bringing them in. It's she's yeah done a really fantastic job of you know bringing in the diverse community that is North Melbourne from the people who live in commission flats to yeah the people who like the school kids da 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 yeah. She, it's so it kind of which i think is really important when when running a program like refuge where we're ex- experimenting with these sorts of yeah and um, like in previous years refuge involved setting up an emergency relief center and running it for 24 hours mm. this year it's a little bit different because as i say we can't gather like you wouldn't set up an emergency relief center in a pandemic you wouldn't be bringing people together like that but um, yeah, in previous years, it did involve bringing in a lot of people from the local community to 
to come to the North Melbourne Town Hall, which is actually in real life an emergency relief centre, so which is where they would go. Um, yeah. And to your point of Lorna Hannon bringing together people from all different walks of life, that mm. would be another difficult reality mm. of an emergency situation. Exactly. You would have to mix it with people that you may not be used to exactly. mixing it with. Yep. So, yeah. Which is all good for us. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Asha. Pleasure. It's yeah. been great chatting. Yeah, no, yeah, thank you. So let me just reiterate, this is um, Supper Club Sanatorium. It's at 7pm Friday the 31st of August at North Melbourne Town Hall. Yeah. It's um, $20 for full fare or $15 for concession, and you can get the tickets at www.artshouse.com.au. And you get a meal, an organic um, local in-season meal with that. Um, mm. um, and unfortunately, the tickets are booked. It's booked out at the moment, but but people like it's highly likely that um, there'll be spaces if you if you just come to the door. Just wait at the door. Yep. someone will handball you one. Yes. Yep. Thank you so much Great. for coming in Thanks this morning. Lot. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 8:18 a.m. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and most importantly, peers in the community. Love our 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Keeping with the theme of uh, kind of dystopian uh, futures, I've got a track to play for everybody. It's uh, Tunnel Vision by Kate Tempest. And I just wanted to give everybody a little bit of a warning that there is one subtle swear word. Uh, so, but I, I, I applaud everybody to listen, to hear it out because it's, it's relevant and, uh, it's a very powerful track. So please enjoy. Stop until we're beaten down the planet into pellets before the interstellar mission to infinity. 
inflict more terror It's killing me, it's killing me, it's filling me I'm vomiting, it's stilling me Everything is fine, really, silly me Poor kids shot dead, poor kids locked up Poor kids saying, this is the future that you left us Stocked up, lunch meat, processed Punch from an unclean fat cat Tasty, tasty poison, carcinogenic Diabetic, asthmatic, epileptic Post-traumatic, bipolar and disaffected Atomized, thinking we're engaged when we're pacified Staring at the screen so we don't have to see the planet die Sleep so deep, it don't matter how they shake us If we can't face it, we can't escape it But tonight the storms come She's screaming, she's screaming The drones turned a beautiful boy into a pile of bones Nobody to bury, nobody is home Running from war, the boat's full The boat's sinking a mile offshore No beds in the hospitals, our minds are against us Imagine your daughter was gunned down Defenseless on her way to school There'd be uproar, but she's collateral damage It doesn't matter, now if our kids are fine That's enough for us, you can't love into a vacuum There's got to be a limit Welcome to the biggest crime that's ever been committed You think you and I are different kinds You caught up in specifics, you and I apart Are easier to limit, the illusion's so complete It's impossible to bring it into focus Cinematic stock footage, you think people are locust, uniform men keep unleashing explosives. What we gonna do to wake up? We sleep so deep, it don't matter how they shake us. If we can't face it, we can't escape it. But tonight the storms come. Tunnel vision, tunnel vision. Work, drinks, heartbreak. You can't face the past, the past a dark place. Can't sleep, can't wake, sitting in our boxes, notching up our victories as other people's losses. Another day, another chance to turn your face away from pain. Let's get a takeaway. You meet me in the pub a little later, we'll say the same things as ever. Life's a waiting game. When we're gonna see that life is happening. And every single body bleeding on its knees is an abomination. And every natural being is making communication. And we're just sparks, tiny parts of a bigger constellation. We're minuscule molecules that make up one body. You see, the tragedy and pain of a person that you've never met is present in your nightmares, in your pull towards despair. And the sickness of the culture and the sickness in our hearts is a sickness that's inflicted by this distance that we share. Now it was our bombs that started this war, and now it rages far away, so we just snort up. So that was Kate Tempest's Tunnel Vision. Um, some, again, heavy content there, but uh, this is the time to contemplate our potential um, disasters and the state of the world because honesty is the only way through survival. Um, and on this note, I'd like to make a statement um, from Iran Mavalgam from the Tamil Refugee Council on Scott Morrison's inhumane record of torturing Tamil refugees. So the Tamil Refugee Council is relieved that Peter Dutton's attempt to become leader of the Federal Liberal Party has failed. But the Scott Morrison-led coalition will continue to offer only inhumanity to refugees and asylum seekers. In his brief tenure as Immigration Minister in the Abbott Liberal Government from September 2013 to December 2014, Morrison implemented Operation Sovereign Borders a military-led border security operation to stop refugees from reaching Australia by boat. Some of the policy measures included turning back boats to Sri Lanka, regardless of the refugee status of passengers, reintroducing temporary protection visas for refugees living in Australia to deny them permanent resettlement, and increasing the capacity of offshore detention centres on Nauru and Manus Island. 
It was a cold-hearted policy that received global condemnation for breaching international laws against torture and persecution, and it has had deadly consequences. On the 1st of June 2014, Tamil refugee Leo Semenpali died from self-immolation while waiting for official refugee status. Scott Morrison stooped to a new low by refusing Leo's parents a visa to come and bury their son. In a criminal act of pathological indifference, despite overwhelming evidence of Tamils fearing for their lives, in July 2014, Morrison oversaw the detaining of Tamil refugees at sea and the attempt to deliver 157 Tamils back into the hands of their oppressor. Concerted efforts by Morrison and his department to deny that torture and sexual violence continued to be inflicted upon Tamil people helped Sri Lanka whitewash its genocidal crimes against Tamils. Morrison helped to maintain a close relationship with the Sri Lankan regime. Our new Prime Minister was happy to rub shoulders with a mass murderer under investigation by the UN for war crimes. The escalation in deportations and separation of Tamil refugee families today is a worrying trend that highlights the ongoing targeting of Tamil refugees by this government. Our new Prime Minister is no friend of Tamils and is no friend of ours. I'll say, is no friend of the youth, is no friend of anybody outside of his own status quo. His own political clique. Uh, yeah, thanks very much to Arun for providing us that statement to read out this morning. Just before we wrap up the show, I uh, just wanted to let people know, if they haven't heard already, uh, there has been another uh, mass shooting in the US. This time it was at a video game tournament, a Madden 2018 video game tournament in Jackson, Florida. At the moment it looks like there's four people dead and many more wounded. A quick review of the gun laws in Florida. There are no permits required to purchase guns in Florida. No registration is required. No license is required. There's no assault weapons law. There's no magazine capacity restriction. No background checks for private sales and no local autonomy. Uh, people are obviously bemoaning the fact that people are making this a political issue immediately in the aftermath of the violence, but it must be said that there is a primary vote in Florida on Tuesday for midterm elections, I believe, So, or leading up to those elections, a primary vote for each of the major political parties. So obviously um, people are saying they would like it to be changed. There's also some commentary around uh, the colour of the shooter. I can't find a confirmation on uh, the ethnic background of the shooter, but as Dino on Twitter are saying, if the shooter is white, it'll be mental illness like always. If it's Muslim, it'll be terrorism. If they're black, they'll be called a thug. And if they're, Hista- if they're Hispanic, they'll blame it on immigration. So I think that sums up what a lot of us think about the way that violent crime is reported in, a, in the US and here in Australia. You've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, thanks very much as always for joining us and up next it's Women on the Line You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia For more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au